Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. Today we get to look at a well-known passage in Scripture as we continue our look at the real Jesus, and not necessarily the Jesus that we prefer, uh, not necessarily the Jesus that maybe we grew up thinking and learning about in our home, not necessarily the Jesus that society tells us, not maybe even necessarily the Jesus that you grew up hearing about in church, but the real Jesus that we're looking at through the eyewitness accounts of him in depth. And the central question that we've been addressing through the first eight chapters, we're in chapter eight going into chapter nine today, and the central question of Mark is, who is Jesus? And the whole text up to this point, the primary purpose and the primary goal is to illustrate through his words, through his actions, through other people's observations of him, who Jesus is. Today we're going to actually repeat a couple of verses we uh, read as our text last uh, couple of weeks ago. I'm not losing my mind. It's intentional because it really does go with what we're talking about today. So would you join me in reading Mark 8, 27 through 9, 1? And I will read from the screens with you because uh, in cutting and pasting my message, I realized in first service I cut out part of the message, cut out part of the scripture and didn't put it back in in the right place. So. Join me in reading. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? And they replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about, what about you, he asked, Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, You are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about this. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And he spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. And Lord, I ask that you now send your Holy Spirit as you are already here, but I pray that you'd come to each one of us and and bring to mind uh, the memories we need to remember, the things we need to think about Speak to each one of us right where we're at and meet us in that way. Thank you. Holy Spirit, we welcome you. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus says, but what about you? And he asked Peter, who do you say that I am? His disciples. And Peter said to him, you are the Christ. So we talked about this the last time, but we see that Peter begins to finally get the answer to this question, who are you? And in Peter getting it and using the term Christ, he's not just saying some little designation without a lot of meaning. This term actually means that that Peter, and he would have known this, was declaring that Jesus is the anointed one, uh, divinely sent by God, the Messiah. He is the King of kings who will make everything right. 
And Jesus responds to him and essentially says, yeah, you're right. But then he proceeds to say these amazingly shocking things, so shocking that the disciples have absolutely no frame of reference to even register what he's talking about. And in this whole passage, we're going to see that Jesus is talking essentially about two things. He's first saying basically, yes, I'm the king of kings, but I'm not the king that's going to a throne. I'm a king who's going to be killed. I'm a king going to a cross. And, two, if you want to follow me, you have to go to a cross as well. Cheery news, right? You know, many of you have heard this statement before. Many of you have heard messages on this. And probably you have the same reactions that I've had most of my life when I listen to a message like this. One reaction I have if I'm feeling really good about life is, I really need this. I'm not tough enough. I'm not willing to sacrifice enough. I'm not... I'm not you know, and we just say, okay, so I really need this because it's good for me. And if you're overwhelmed in life at the moment, then your response to a message like this is oftentimes, that's too difficult and you push it away. That's just, this, this is way too vague, too martyrdom-like, and I, I just can't handle this right now. If you're here and you're not sure about Jesus, you may be, you're probably sure about God, but you're really not sure if Jesus is who he says he is, then, then you may read this and, and this question may come to mind. Uh, the question is, you mean you have to live a miserable life in order to follow Jesus? I mean, that's, those, are, those are three reactions that we often have to this text. And I'm here to tell you straight out that none of those reactions is what Jesus is trying to communicate, trying to get from us, wanting us to even have. Jesus in this passage is communicating the central reality of life, of love, of what it means to follow him, of what, it, the, of what it means to become free and to identify purpose in life. You see, after Peter begins to get it, Jesus says to him, yes, I'm the king, but I'm not the one you expect. And he spoke plainly about it. I mean, most of the time Jesus spoke in parables and made the disciples search and ask questions. And I think that was intentional because he wants us to pursue him. He wants us to ask questions. But here Jesus spoke plainly to them. Straight up, saying the Son of Man must suffer. Now let's, let's break that down. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. That's his, actually his favorite designation that he uses to describe himself. And that's not like, that's not like saying, I'm a son of a man, I'm a human, I'm just like everybody else. That's not at all what he's saying. He's actually referring to a passage in Daniel 7 where it refers to this Son of Man who will come, who is this divine figure who will rule and establish everything and set it right for Israel and the earth. And that, you can see that even more in, in verse 38 when, when he goes on and says, and, and to, he says, when the Son of Man comes in his Father's glory, referring to God, with the holy angels. He's actually claiming equality with God and, and, and a command of holy angels. So he's, he's, he's actually making a deliberate claim to being divine here. The Son of Man must suffer. That word suffering is actually where so much of the problem comes forward for Peter and for the people around him that, at that time. You see, never before until Jesus actually says it here 
Has the idea of suffering and the Messiah ever been put together? Now, if you have been a long-time student of the Bible, you will know that in Isaiah 43 and 44 and Isaiah chapter 53 that there's this concept of the suffering servant. And we understand those now to be prophecies of who Jesus was because we see them fulfilled in Jesus. But at the time that Jesus is saying this, those two ideas had never been put together in all of Jewish theological history. And if you think about it, in their mind, it would have been rationally ridiculous to put the two together. How could Jesus, or how could the Messiah come and be this anointed figure who would, who would restore Israel to the dominant world power, restore righteousness, make Israel a blessing to the entire world? How could that person do that and reign and rule and die? It makes no sense. And so Peter, shocked, utterly baffled by Jesus' statements, takes Jesus aside and rebukes him because from Peter's infancy, he had been taught that the Messiah would go to Jerusalem, establish a throne, and make their nation great and restore justice and righteousness in the earth. And Peter, in rebuking Jesus, is really just doing what Peter does best. He's speaking what everybody else is thinking, but nobody else is saying And this word rebuke is such a strong word. It's actually the same word that is used of Jesus when Jesus casts out demons, when he rebukes demons. So so get the picture of what's going on here and the awkward intensity of this moment. Peter has just declared Jesus the anointed king, the king of all kings, the Messiah to come back. And then literally seconds later, he's rebuking him like he's demonized. I mean, this is a really awkward moment. And an intense emotional moment. And Jesus says, yes, I'm the anointed Messiah. And I'm going to Jerusalem to defeat all evil and bring blessing. But I'm not going to do it by going to a throne. I'm going to do it by going to a cross. A cross. I mean, Peter and these guys knew what that meant. A cross, the most humiliating, the most exposing, the most cruel painful form of punishment and death ever. Jesus is going to go to a cross and we have to too? What does that mean? And Jesus is basically saying to us in a nutshell, I'm not going to save you by taking power, but by giving my power. I'm not going to save you by ruling over you. I'm going to save you by serving you. I'm not going to save you from your sin by exacting justice and getting from you exactly what is necessary. I'm going to save you by the ultimate gift of love. And the passage says the Son of Man must suffer. It doesn't say the Son of Man will suffer. It says he must suffer. This is not, this is not an instance where we've got a religious fanatic saying, I'm gonna die because I'm a religious fanatic. It's not even an instance where this person of great religious piety and purity is going to be unjustly treated by people and martyred. It's not that he will die. It's that he must. There's an intentionality to it. There's this sense of that this is not a simple, unfortunate byproduct of being a really good person. This is central to the mission. This is what God is calling us to. Must. Why must Jesus die? 
Let's look at that a little more deeply. And the first point is just simply he must die because of love. And that's, that's trite. We could, we could write it off right there, but let, let's look at it a little more deeply. There's a, an Anglican theologian named William Banstone. And he writes a book, and in it he writes a chapter on the human experience of love and what love is, what we believe about love. And Vanstone asserts something that I think we'll all agree with. He says that all humans, even humans deprived of love in their childhood, know the difference between fake and real love, between contrived love and something that's authentic. We know the difference because we know, we understand that fake love is, is that when somebody wants to use somebody else to a certain degree for their own happiness. In those instances, our love is conditional. It's not unconditional, it's conditional. And it's non-vulnerable, meaning we're, we're protecting a bit of ourselves. We're protecting, putting walls up in ourselves. We only love as long as the person is meeting our needs. Or it doesn't hurt too much. In marriage, this looks like, uh, you know, we, we only uh, love our spouse sexually when they're pleasing to us. You know, we only love our spouse in other ways when, when it's easy, when it's, when it's not constantly difficult. When the, there's a part of us that in fake love that is holding ourselves back to, to be able to kind of cut our losses, whether that means leaving the relationship or just keeping that part of the relationship at a distance to protect ourselves. In true love, the aim is, uh, Van Stone goes on to say, the aim is to spend yourself for the happiness of the other because your greatest joy is that person's true joy. You don't hold back. There's nothing conditional about what you do, regardless of what is happening around you, regardless of the conditions of your relationship. You continually turn towards that person. You remain open. You remain vulnerable. You take risks to love them, even when they lash back and it hurts. You remain vulnerable. You approach them with abandon. And the problem is, he says, and we all know, that all of human love is somewhat fake. It is, isn't it? And why is that? You know, we as humans need love like we need air and water. And because we need it that badly, it kind of puts us in this mode where we almost become a little bit like mercenaries in our approach to love. We see this person over here and we go, man, if I could have their love, it would make me feel so great. It would make my life so great. And we go and invest in that place, in that, in that relationship, because we get a good return. And in the end, it really is fake love because we love at least to a certain extent, and it's hard for us to sort out what's pure and what's, what's fake in our lives, but we love for a certain extent because of what we get. And in essence, when that's true, we love really because we're loving ourselves and getting what we want out of the relationship. And we know it's true. We know we can't give true love. We're looking for it, but we can't give it. Others can't give it, and we can't get it. And so what we need really is someone who can start the ball rolling with a real love, or a, a love, be, a love be, that, that comes to us because they don't need us, because they have all their needs met and they just give out of a purity. And when we look at and remind ourselves of uh, weeks ago, when we looked at the idea of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are reminded and we understand that Jesus, through all of eternity in the Trinity, 
had all of his needs met for relationship, all of his needs met for love, all of his needs met for significance. He had no needs. God does not need us. He doesn't need us one bit because everything is met. And yet Jesus left behind all of that to come and bleed and die to redeem us. So why redeem us? Why would God redeem us in Jesus when He doesn't need us? It's simply because He loves us unconditionally, fully, absolutely. And you see, when we understand that, when we not only understand it, but we experience it, this whole call to the cross becomes something that's flipped from being something that is, that is dangerous and awful and horrible to something that is this epitome of beauty. When we really experience His love, like, like even just a couple weeks ago, I had the privilege of walking into a conversation where a person was just, they were crying. It was here at church and they were crying and they had just accepted Christ as their Lord. And they couldn't stop talking. They kept talking about how they just couldn't stop crying. And isn't that the experience that some of you have had when, you, when you've met Christ, whether it was at your point of accepting Him or at other times in your life? It's, I, I know it's similar to the feeling I had. She, she kept describing this feeling that is like uh, almost, uh, well, in my, own, in my own hearing of her and in in my own experience, it's, it's like when God comes on you with this overwhelmingly powerful sense of love and peace. It feels like this, uh, it feels like the most sublime, a warm shower on a cold day except that the warmth in the shower is coming up from inside of you. And it's just this amazing, amazing experience of God's love. He did all this because He loves us. Why must Jesus suffer and die? A second is to pay the price and show us the cost of healing. And I know that kind of sounds trite. You've heard that before, but but go with me for a minute here. And let's look at forgiveness. Let's, let's maybe look at forgiveness just a little bit more deeply. Someone wrongs you, okay? Let's, let's, let's just use this example. Somebody comes to your home, and they get really angry, and you've got this prized... Uh, prized gift of this $300 lamp that somebody gave you that, that just means a lot to you. And they take that and they just throw it on the ground and break it all up. They've offended you. You have a choice in that instance. You can make them pay. They pay you the $300. Or you pay, right? You pay the $300 or you pay by choosing to walk around in darkness. See, forgiveness doesn't happen without somebody paying. Relationship doesn't happen without somebody paying. And it's not just economically, right? We understand that. But if someone wrongs you, if someone trashes your reputation, if they, if they go behind your back and gossip about you and do you great injustice, if they violate you in some horrible way, there's a debt that we feel that needs to be paid, isn't there? We all feel it, Right? Injustice has not been done. There's this debt that needs to be paid. And when you sense that debt, you have a choice, right? You have a choice. You can either make them pay by exacting in their life the same suffering you experience, either by your words or by your actions or by gossip or by trying to distance yourself in relationship or alienate relationship, whatever you do. You can make them pay or you have to absorb the cost. By forgiving. 
You forgive. When you forgive, you have to, you have to choose not to have vengeful thoughts. You have to choose to fight against not doing vengeful actions. Don't you catch yourself when you're struggling with this, driving around or in the day or just working somewhere, and all of a sudden you have these angry thoughts come to you and you have this whole argument of what you wish you could tell that person in your head, even though you're not going to do it? You see, somebody always pays when there's a wrong done, when forgiveness is needed. You suffer if you choose to forgive. You die to yourself if you choose to forgive. You pay the cost if you choose to forgive. And the point is this. If you don't absorb the cost to forgive and you go into the relationship wanting judgment, you're just going to perpetuate this, this uh, or justice. You're just going to perpetuate this cycle of what you sow is what you reap. You're going to go in there wanting vengeance and you're going to sow vengeance and you're going to get it back and it's just going to be this continual cycle in life, this consequence circle in life. And you see, God knows... God knows someone has to pay when wrong's been done, when injustice has been done. And in His love, even though He doesn't need us, He doesn't need our love, He doesn't need relationship with us, He has all those needs met in His purity of love. He chooses to absorb those costs, to pursue us and act in forgiveness towards us, even before we asks for it. In this passage, Jesus is essentially showing us who He is to us as Lord, painting a picture of who He is, and in so doing, also helping us to understand what making Him Lord of our lives means. Jesus turns attention to us, to, to us when He says, if, you, if anyone would come after Me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. This whole idea of this ultimate cost, which they know is being referred to on the cross, this ultimate commitment, absolute commitment, is this idea of lordship. But what does lordship really mean to us? What does it really mean to us? And and how do we wrestle with it in in our world today? You know, a century ago, and, and for some even as late as the 90s or 2000s in the church, we came to our conditions or our, our decisions of faith and our decisions of right and wrong through rational propositional arguments about what was right, what was wrong, and we, we, we even had churches speaking like that. But, but today, most of the time, we seek more prag- pragmatically. We're asking the question, does it work? Uh, and that's really the question not only in faith, but it's, it's our same question that we have in politics. It's the same question we ask in morality. It's the same question we ask in lifestyle choices. Uh, we often say it this way, maybe it will work for you, but does it work for me? And ultimately, when you look at that, the pragmatist finds truth in their own conscience. It's not out there. It's not out in the laws. It's not out in the words. It's not out in the arguments of other people. It's not even necessarily in the lifestyle of other people that we observe. It's, does it work for me? And that whole change in the way people come to faith decisions or make decisions of life is a huge opportunity for the church in, the, in this sense. The gospel is power, and it does work. But when Jesus asks us to carry the cross and proposes this whole lordship issue before us and to obey him absolutely to death, to obey him to the ultimate, that view of finding the truth 
that works for me in my own conscience is something that runs completely counter to what Jesus is actually saying. Jesus is saying, I am the truth. Not your likes, not your dislikes, not your gauge of what feels right, what feels like it's working. I am. And the question still is, does Christianity work for the believer? And, and if we really look honestly at Jesus' life and the life of the disciples and the life of other people in the church and the life throughout history, in the long run, absolutely it works. And in the long run, not obeying Him leads to ruin. But in the short run, Jesus is inviting us to this experience of the cross, to be willing to face even potential suffering. He's inviting us to be like Peter going through this experience where he's completely confused at what Jesus is saying and it makes no sense to him and to still follow and obey. I've seen many people in my life, in my life and I've faced this many times. I think all of us face this. Our walk in following faith and coming to a faith decision in Christ or after we've come to a faith decision in Christ, our walk in growing Him always leads us to these forks in the road. These forks where we have to choose whether we will identify with Christ or we'll get what we think we want in life. It really comes down to a lot of times this matter of I, I can't identify with Christ and still get this. I, I can't identify with Christ and get the sexual partner that I want. I can't identify with Christ and still get the promotion or the job I want. I, can I identify with Christ and still get the house I want? We have all these impasses that we naturally face in life. But lordship, Jesus is saying, means unconditional, ultimate obedience. So let's look at it from this way. Why do we need Him as Lord? Why do we need Jesus as Lord? Verse 35 says, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. In this passage, he actually uses the term, the, ter- the, the Greek word that's translated life is the word psyche. It actually means the, the identity, the personality, the, what makes you distinct and valuable. And Jesus is not saying when he says this that you need to lose your sense of self. If he would have said that, he would have said you need to lose yourself so you can lose yourself. And that's not what he's saying here. He's saying ultimately I want you to find who you really are and be released to be who you really are. But in following me, your sense of identity will likely in many areas need to go through this place of death and resurrection. He's essentially saying this, until you really know me by obedience, not just intellectual observation, not just your own judgments, but until you really know me by obedience, you will not know who you really are and how beautiful and how good He created you. In a sense, He's saying to us, I want you to die to your identity and let me determine who you are in your identity. It's a little bit uh, like the picture of Prince Rillian in the Chronicles of Narnia in the Silver Chair, if you've seen that. Uh, Prince Rillian is put under this spell and the people around him are coming to him and saying, you're a prince, you're a prince, you're a prince, but he can't hear it because he's in this fog. And Jesus is asking us, until we completely surrender to the pure, perfect love of God through unconditional obedience, losing our sense of identity and letting God define who you are, 
you will never really discover who you really are and the beauty of that. So why do we need Him as Lord? One reason is it's the only way to ever discover your true identity. But let, let's, let's look f- further. Peter, uh, you know, in thinking about Jesus and needing Him going to Jerusalem to suffer and die, we see this amazingly furious reaction that we already alluded to a little bit, but, but what's going on for Peter there in that, that reaction? What's really going on for Peter is that Jesus is doing something that's not in his plans. It's not in his agenda. It's not how he perceives the future. It's not what he sees as good and right and just. It's not according to Peter's agenda. And he gets furious. And when he gets furious with that, he's also struck with fear because when things don't go the way we want them to, when things take a path towards the the healing God is bringing in our life that doesn't seem right, that is painful, that's difficult, we also oftentimes in fear that it's never going to happen, that God's not faithful, We, like Peter, lash out at God and rebuke God, don't we? Haven't you ever gone through a time where you've almost shaken your fist in the air at God or you've prayed to God saying, where are you and why would you let this happen? How could you? And you're not good. And we I mean, this is the same thing Peter is dealing with. But coming to a king, settling this lordship issue is coming and not negotiating. We don't come to a king and negotiate. We don't come to a king and impose our agenda. We lay our sword at His feet and we obey unconditionally. It's not easy, is it? When you negotiate, see, you're laying your agenda at His feet and your agenda is the end and Jesus is just the means to get you where you want to go. And He's not really Lord. Rebecca Pippert wrote a famous book, Out of the Salt Shaker. In fact, it was designated by Christianity Today as one of the top 50 books in the last, or one of the top books that have influenced Christian thought in the last 50 years. Um, in the book, she says this. She says, whatever controls you in dealing with the lordship issue, whatever controls you is really your Lord. Uh, whether you seek power, then power is your Lord. If you seek beauty, beauty is your Lord. If you seek approval from other people and acceptance from other people, then you are controlled by the people you want to please. And Jesus in the whole section of Mark that we've been studying up to now, one of the big themes that keeps coming out over and over again, and sometimes I feel like, how many times can we preach this? Because it gets old for me to even say it. But, but he's basically saying the beginning of relationship starts with a realization that we are not in control. And yet some of us are maybe even thinking uh, or maybe have said, no one controls me. I control myself. No one controls me. Well, if that's the case, then independence controls you. And you know where we're going to see how that controls you? We're going to see it in your marriage. We're going to see it in your relationships. We're probably going to see it in your divorce. We're probably going to see it in your commitment issues or inability to commit issues. Or maybe we'll see it in the fact that all of your relationships are really just work relationships or task-oriented relationships. They're utilitarian. And no one really knows you. Why is it that the studies say, especially for men, us guys, that, that very few guys actually have a close friend? It's because this independence, when we say no one controls me, damages all of who we are. What is competing with Jesus' lordship in your life? There's a couple ways to discover this. 
little exercise that I've seen done before. How many of you have ever played uh, the game Jenga? Where you've pulled out the blocks. To me, that's one of the, those games you play once or twice and then it sits in your closet for years because it's like, what's the point? It's going to all fall over eventually, right? But, you know, the whole point of it is to pull out the blocks and try not to pull out the ones that make the house come crashing down. In your life, what are the blocks that cause your life to come crashing down? Is it, is it your job? Your sense of fulfillment you get from that? If you get fired, does your whole world fall apart? Do you go into depression? Do you go into anxiety at a high level? Do you just fall apart? Is it, maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's a relationship with a friend or a parent. What are those blocks in your life that when they're pulled out, they make your life come crashing down? You see, Jesus is wanting to lead us to the place where the only block that could be pulled out that would make your life come crashing down is Him. That's what lordship is. There's another way to identify some of the things in your life that are competing with the lordship of Jesus. And, and that's through looking at your language, looking at the things you say, looking at the things you pray. It's the if language of your life. It's if I will follow Jesus and I will obey completely if it doesn't cost me serious money. I'll follow Jesus if it means that nothing bad will happen to my kids. I'll follow Jesus if it means I get to be married and have a really happy marriage and things are easy and good. I'll, I'll follow Jesus if I get to have the house or live in the neighborhood I want to have. I'll, I'll follow Jesus. What are the if? What's behind the if in your statements? The things that you've prayed to God in those moments of frustration. What are the ifs? What are the ifs? Because whatever's behind the if is competing with the Lordship of Jesus. I want you to actually just take a few minutes. We're going to pause for about 30 seconds. And if you've got a piece of paper or a pen or whatever handy, there's some at the end of the box, end of the rows if you need them. I just want you to think for a moment or you can take notes on your iPhone. What is, what's behind the if in your life? I'll obey if. I'll follow Jesus if. Just take a few moments with that. Jesus is saying in this passage to us, I'm, I'm not just a king who arbitrarily demands this absolute obedience. I'm a king who doesn't need you, doesn't need anything you have, doesn't need your love. And yet I chose to come to go to a cross to pay the price because I want to be in relationship with you because I want to love you. Why would you not want to obey him? Barbara Boyd addresses another reason why we sometimes, why we, why we need to follow Jesus as Lord. She uses this illustration uh, and, and, and basically is like this. If the distance between the earth and the sun, now that's, that, that point to the, the sun there, just think about, about a... a a thousandth of a, of a pixel on that screen is actually our galaxy. Or not our galaxy, our solar system, the sun and the earth and all the planets that we're used to studying and stuff, which you can tell I didn't study really well. 
And this is just a pictorial representation of what our galaxy looks like. And she says, if, if the distance between the Earth and the Sun, which is 92 million miles, was the thickness of a piece of paper, the diameter of our galaxy would be a stack of papers 310 miles high. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing to think about? And she goes on to say this, if Jesus is the Son of God who holds all things together by the word of his power, which is what the Bible says about Jesus, is this the kind of person you invite into your life to be your personal assistant? Think about that. What does that mean to you? You see, this whole text is about Jesus as Lord and King. A Lord and King who initiates pure love toward us so that when He demands obedience, we can trust Him and His good intent for us. And when we understand how amazingly beautiful that is, how awesome that is, how unthinkably wonderful that is, then the call to absolute obedience, to taking up our cross to follow Him, takes on a whole different, beautiful, gracious, loving meaning. And when you're struggling with this whole issue of obedience, because we all do, we all come to forks in the roads on a daily basis, on a weekly basis where we struggle with this issue, remember these four things about obedience and the decision to obey Him. First, something is always Lord. Something always is Lord. Something or someone else is always controlling you. This whole myth of us being independent and in control is is simply that. It's a myth. Something controls us. Why not? Why not the King who went to the cross for us? And second, why would Jesus command you to obey Him? He doesn't need it. The only possible example and reason why He would why he would command us to obey him is because he loves us. And he sees us dying, living under a spell without his love, and he wants to free us. And third, he deserves it. You don't ask a guy like that to be your assistant. You don't ask a God like that to be your personal assistant to go to your own ends. And fourth, because he loves perfectly and doesn't need us, he is the only one we can trust to control our lives without destroying our lives. He is the only one we can trust to control our lives who really truly has your best interests at heart, your freedom, your, fe- your healing, your best at heart. Elizabeth Elliot tells a story about a beggar. This beggar is sitting by the road and he has a pot here and there's a few copper coins in it like our pennies and he's sitting here begging all day long and Later in the day, all of a sudden, the king himself rides by on his big steed with his entourage. And the king stops. And he looks down at the beggar in his pot and sees money in it. And he goes, will you give me your money? And the beggar looks up at him and goes, in his mind, how offensive, how autocratic and demanding and ruthless and evil is that for you to demand the one who has everything in the world, everything that anybody could ever want for you to demand that you take my copper coins from me. And 
being a good citizen and fearful of the results, if he doesn't, he reaches into his cup and gives the king two of the many coins. And in return, the king drops two large diamonds into his cup and rides away. And the beggar's thought was simply this. Why didn't I give him it all? Why would I not give him everything? Why would you not give a Lord like this absolutely every, every part of your life and surrender everything to him? Why would you not do that? I want to I take you one step further and, and, again, ask you to close your eyes and just go with me. I, I, I want you to take a moment to visualize yourself for a moment as that beggar sitting by the side of the road in tattered rags, a few copper coins in your, in your cup. Would you do that? Would you just try to let yourself go there? And would you allow yourself to see the king coming by saying, would you give me it all? Would you give me every coin in your cup? In your cup? What are those coins? What are you holding back from God because his demands seem oppressive, unreasonable? What's in your cup that you're holding back? Are there any of those coins in your cup that are the backside of your if statements? Would you take a moment and let the king speak to you about those? I don't know of a topic that leads me more to a sense of awe and a sense of worship. We deliberately shortened the music up front to add more music on the back end to lead us in a sense of in a time of worship in response to this. And here's how I want to invite you to respond. Maybe you need to sit some more time with that visualization. Maybe you need to sit some more time and, and reflect and ask God, what are those if statements in my life? What are those blocks that, that make my life come crashing down that aren't you? And how do you want me to give them to you? Maybe you need to spend some time in reflection in, in that. Uh, maybe you're at a point where you've already identified some of those things, and, and I want to invite you as a, way of, as a way of taking action on those if statements or those things in your life that you've identified of maybe coming up to the communion, communion table, and, and this may be silly, but maybe even coming up and just acting like you're putting your coins on the communion table and then taking the bread and the wine of what Jesus did for us going to the cross and saying, I'm leaving my coins here. And I'm going to follow you in this area that I've held back for so long because I wish I would have given you all. And maybe you just want to stand and worship. So they're going to sing some songs. You can sit, you can stand, you can worship, you can sing, you can do communion. Let's take the next few minutes just to respond and worship to God and do business with God in your own way, in your own time. Thank you for listening. 
Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at go to quest.org.